because it's true, isn't it? Uh, because of who he is, King of Kings, eternal deity, uh, that's the cause for rejoicing. So um, inclement weather notwithstanding, it doesn't matter. The Lord Jesus is on the throne. Thank you, John Mark, for reminding us and for leading us. And uh, we appreciate your personality. I have missed the joy of the Lord, which I see in your life. <clears throat> um, I'm a little out of shape. There's a special microphone I'm supposed to use, but I forgot to get it. So uh, I'll use this one. But how about it for the shirt? The shirt. Really. So I put it on this morning because... Uh, you have to wear something. And uh, so my wife gives me this whole fashion lecture thing about uh, it's a summer shirt and uh, we're not in the summer. And, you know, and I searched as hard as I could all through the book of Leviticus and I could not find where it says on a certain day you can't wear. So anyway, women. Are a blessing, are a blessing. So I meant to say, let me complete this sentence. Well, listen, our pastor is unable to be with us this evening, so um, you got me. And I found out about it in church on Sunday, which is a reminder uh, to pay attention because you, <laughs> you never know when you're going to find out what you're supposed to be doing if you don't pay attention. So anyway, uh, wasn't his message Sunday if you were here? Marvelous. Marvelous. Uh, his trip to Romania, uh, it raises the bar when you hear about the uh, level of commitment by brothers and sisters in Christ in other places, isn't it? It's easy for us, a little too easy for us to, to be Christians here, I think. And as a result, sometimes our faith is a little, a little sloppy, not as mature if we don't get a parking spot real close to church. <laughs> we think the world is coming to an end, uh, but those people are really counting the cost, and it was wonderful to hear of his experience there. There are certain things, whether you're a Romanian Christian or uh, a Christian in Texas or in Louisiana. And by the way, I am not responsible for this bad weather. Um, I've been accused of bringing it from Louisiana, and really, uh, we only brought um, gumbo and jambalaya and the cholesterol to prove it. But we're not responsible for the bad weather. But anyway, whether you're a Christian in Louisiana or Texas or Romania, there are certain things, common denominators, that we ought to hold to dearly, and one is the Word of God, the Bible. So we began a series last week called Foundations. What, even in the midst of rapid-fire change, which is distressing to all of us, what are enduring truths which are non-negotiables, which can never be changed? And we introduced the topic of the Bible uh, last week. Of course, the cross is the center of everything we are about. On it, the Prince of Glory died and obtained for us the remission of 
sins and a love letter, the likes of which is still overwhelming to us no matter when you became a Christian. And surrounding the cross, we have a bedrock of core beliefs which we must hold to dearly, never allowed to be compromised, and one is the Bible. So we spoke last week simply about the nature of the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament. I mentioned to you that it was a form of revelation called special revelation, and that there was a second called general, uh, the evidence of God through what he has made. But how blessed we are, those of us who have the scriptures, to have received special revelation and scripturated truth of redemption through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I mentioned how uh, those to whom this has been entrusted have the obligation to take special revelation to those who, at this point, only have general revelation. And I mentioned to you the books of the Bible and the division and uh, of the scriptures and all the rest and the law of Moses. And we did a little short journey through the 66 books of the Bible. And so let's do part B tonight, still developing the theme of the bedrock of our faith on the word of God. And uh, what we'll do in weeks ahead is deal with many things. First, the Bible, then God. What is he like? And then the Trinity. Is that a legitimate thing to believe in? Well, the answer is, of course. And then the three persons of the Trinity and then the nature of salvation and the nature of man. And what about uh, the Holy Spirit? And what about um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And what about speaking in tongues? Uh, practices which are not commonly experienced here. I would like you to know why they're not. And so, so we'll look to those. Uh, I think the scriptures are pretty clear on those issues. We'll talk about the nature of salvation. Um, we'll talk about um, Satan uh, and uh, demons and angels and end time events. Basic foundational truths, it seems to me, which are the bedrock of our faith. So tonight, part B on the Bible, something called the canon or canonicity. Canon, not the weapon. It's actually a, a word that comes from a Greek word, meaning standard or rule. When we talk about the canon of Scripture, we're really talking about... Why are some things in the Bible and some things not? How did, how did the books of the Bible get into the Bible? How do we know that the canon consists of 66 books of the Bible, no more, no less? Is the canon closed? Is it a complete revelation? What about the Apocrypha, which I mentioned briefly in passing last week? So that's what we're going to talk about now, the canon, kind of a theological term, but it simply means what's supposed to be in the Bible and what's supposed to be left behind. So there are certain ways to recognize the canonical books of the Bible. So let me give you just a, about three or four uh, of the indications that an Old Testament book is canon. Canon meaning rule or standard. Does the book live up to the standard of divine inspiration so that we consider it to be part of the Bible, the word of God? So here are some of the criteria for Old Testament 
canonical books. Number one, does the book of the Old Testament have one of the marks of inspiration? In other words, when you read it, is there evidence in it that God is the one who spoke through the writer and now to you? And does it have a measure of divine authority and inspiration? Folks, that's a big one. Your experience in reading the Old Testament ought to be qualitatively different than when you read a Superman comic. If you can't tell the difference, something really is seriously wrong. When you read the Bible, I didn't say we understand it all, we surely don't, but when you open up, in this case, to the Old Testament, don't you begin as your life is exposed to it? Don't you begin to sense you are on holy ground? It's because you is. It's not Mad Magazine. It's not an encyclopedia or a dictionary. It really is the Word of God, and you know it. Now, it's subjective, you may say, but don't deny your subjective experience in the Word of God. Your subjective experience in the Bible is much different than it is in any other literature. I mean, I went to school, and we studied Shakespeare and all this stuff, great masterpieces of world literature. That kind of inspiration however, was entirely different. We admired the creativity and artistic skillfulness of the author. But I have to tell you, when I read Genesis or Exodus or Leviticus or Michael or one of those books, it's a little different than admiring the artistry of the writer. It's a little like being in the throne room and wanting to get on your knees and say, Oh God, you have come near I am in a holy place and my life is being spared. Oh God, search me and know me. See if there be any bad stuff in me. Root it out. Lead me in the way that matters for eternity. It's a whole different experience when you're reading the Bible. So one of the tests of canonicity is, does it have the mark of divine inspiration? I remember, as I said, being in college and being exposed to all kinds of things, but there's nothing, nothing, nothing like the Word of God. And it ought to be treated, you know, I have to tell you to this day, when I was a little Jewish kid, the rabbis used to tell us never to put anything on top of the, their Bible was only, sadly, only the Old Testament. You were never to put anything on top of it. You never were to put it on the floor. You never were to open it backwards the wrong way. You never were to fold its pages nor to write in it. You should never tear it. And if you did, there were all manners of prayers and liturgical practices to make it right. No, I don't think we have to go to that end. And yet, I appreciate that background, even though I don't practice those things. The principle uh, really is still embedded in my life. <gasps> That's God's Word. We don't treat it like we do any other literature. He authored it. He inspired it. Don't you have that experience? Listen, if you're not having that experience in the Scriptures, why not? <laughs> Something's missing. So 
So one of the tests of canonicity is the mark of divine inspiration. A second one, was the human author of the book recognized as a spokesman of God? I was visited in Baton Rouge one time uh, by someone. My assistant told me uh, there was a man out here who wanted to see me, and he was there to persuade me. He was one of God's messengers, and he had a word for me, and had written volumes of things and all the rest and claiming it was God's word and God spoke it to him and now he was speaking it to me and uh, all the rest and maybe he was right. How do I know he's the real deal and not? Well, is he recognized as an authorized spokesman of God? No, he was recognized as a kook. Um, who found his way into my office. But the writers of the Old Testament books were recognized as the authorized messengers and spokesmen of God. It wasn't somebody out of the blue making these rather outlandish and dramatic claims. These were people of God whose credibility was authenticated by other people of God and whose authority was backed up by capacities which God gave uniquely to them. They were the prophets, legitimate, authentic, God-ordained prophets of the Old Testament and to authenticate the legitimacy of their prophetic ministry, God enabled them to do things not typically done signs and wonders and miracles works great mighty works of God but never as an end in themselves these great mighty works were always a backdrop for the words the works are always the backdrop for the words there's no such thing as a freestanding miracle in the Bible a purposeless miracle an arbitrary supernatural manifestation of God's greatness. Oh no, he's a God of order. What he does is always connected to something that has a grand purpose. The works, the miraculous works in the Bible are always, always to attest either to his word or to one of his authorized messengers. That's why all of these random uh, um, claims, sensational claims to supernatural works today, I always ask, why? What's the point? What does it do? What does it prove? Who does it authenticate? So the second mark of canonicity is, is the human author recognized as a spokesman of God? Thirdly, is the book historically accurate? Folks, God does not inspire an errant product. It's not who he is. We do. He doesn't. So the doctrine of divine inspiration, which we'll talk about, is what drives the doctrine of inerrancy. If you believe God inspired the scriptures, if you believe all scriptures God breathed, and I hope you do, then you are an inerrantist. Otherwise, give up the doctrine of inspiration. Because if you believe the scripture is divinely inspired, you must believe the scriptures are without error. So if there is a book 
filled with historical inaccuracies, I have to tell you, it ought not be part of the word of God. It could be your words and mine. We're just imperfect human beings. He is God. He is without defect. There are no flaws in the divine nature. So the third test of canonicity, is the book historically accurate? Is it consistent with archaeological discovery and all the rest? And then the fourth test of Old Testament canonicity is this. Is there New Testament evidence for the canonicity of the book? Do you know there are over 250 quotations of Old Testament scripture in the New Testament? Whenever you see that, the New Testament apostle is verifying the canonicity of the Old Testament prophet. There is a passage of scripture, for instance, this is an important one in the New Testament. It's Luke 24, 44. And the Lord is speaking in Luke 24, 44. He says, now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me, now notice, written about you where, Lord? Uh, all things that are written about me, first, in the law of Moses, second, and the prophets, third, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Now, I'll tell you what's significant about that. Early on in the New Testament, Luke's gospel, we're finding out those people already knew of adhered to and believed in a threefold division of Old Testament books. And that exists to this very day. That's how the Old Testament in the Hebrew Bible is divided, this very way. So early on, a determination was made about which canonical books are part of the Bible and which books are not. So those are tests of Old Testament canonicity. How about New Testament? couple things. One, is the book written by an apostle or by one of the immediate associates of an apostle? Why? Once again, as God gave special authority to writing prophets in the Old Testament, he gave special authority to writing apostles in the New Testament. That's why we're told in the Bible our faith is built on the foundation of the, what two groups? The prophets and, yeah, and the apostles. So is the book written by an apostle or one of the apostles' immediate associates? Do you know there are some New Testament books that are not written by an apostle? Could you, does that, do any come to mind? It's kind of a little bit of a quiz. I'm sure you're right because I can't hear you. Uh, yeah, 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 Luke. And what else? Acts, because that was authored by Luke. Yeah, those are not written by an apostle. How about uh, uh, another one of the gospels starts with M? Okay, Mark is, is what it is. And then Hebrews, you know, we mentioned last week we don't know who, who authored it. Possibly Paul, but we don't know uh, for sure. How about a small book in the New Testament starts with J? Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so those are books not written by an apostle, but, but written by close associates of the apostles. So that's one of the marks of canonicity of a New Testament book. Secondly, is the content of the book consistent with the teaching in all the other books? See, here's the beauty of the New Testament. Diverse authorship, 
circumstances, geography, political situation, culture, common thread. <laughs> one complements, one book complements the other. One is not contrary to the other. There's no unusual esoteric theology <laughs> in any of the New Testament books. Everything is a consistent thread. So one of the tests of canonicity is, is the statement consistent with the rest of the New Testament? As the New Testament comments on itself, is it harmonizable? Is one teaching harmonizable with the rest of the New Testament? If it isn't, that book is not part of the canon. Third criteria. Has the book been acknowledged elsewhere in the New Testament by either the Lord or one of his apostles? Do they authenticate, validate, do they legitimize the other books of the New Testament? And then again, the internal evidence of the book being inspired or God-breathed. Now folks, no book of the Bible became part of the canon because a church council voted on it. No, the books of the Bible are canon because they're God's word. So what did the church councils do? They simply recognized the books which are already canonical, which already live up to the standard of divine inspiration. And the canon of the Bible was completed, acknowledged, and unanimously recognized by early church councils in the fourth century. That's when the canon was, the books of the Bible, the 66 books of the Bible, were recognized as canonical. But what about the 13 to 15 other books which are known as the Apocrypha? So here's where we get just a tad bit controversial. But, um, you know, hear me out a little bit and then you'll know that I'm right. <clears throat> okay, so the word Apocrypha uh, comes from a word meaning to hide away. It has m multiple applications. Some referred to books as apocryphal because they said they had some hidden secret meaning not available to the uninitiated. But the word apocrypha really became more popularly associated with these 13 to 15 books which church leaders uh, decided ought to be hidden away from public reading because they felt they were very questionable and even somewhat dangerous. The 13 to 15 apocryphal books, which are part of the Catholic Bible and, and, and part of what are read and considered to be inspired scripture in the Catholic Church. But you notice most people here don't have those 13 to 15. They, if you count in your table of contents, you probably only have 66. So, so what about these apocryphal books? Well, folks, we don't consider them to be part of the canon. We don't consider them to be divinely inspired for a lot of reasons. One is this. They don't pass the test of historical accuracy. Remember I mentioned to you divine inspiration presumes inerrancy, no error. And historical accuracy is one of the marks of a canonical book. 
But the apocryphal books are laden with historical inaccuracies. Here's one. Uh, there are two books of Maccabees, uh, they're called Maccabees in the Apocrypha, in which a character named Antiochus Epiphanes is spoken of. He's a bad guy, Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a real historical character, kind of a bad guy. But these two books um, describe for us his death. The problem is the two books tell us he died in three different places and in three different ways. So that's, you see, though he's a historically um, existing figure, he died once, and, you know, it's appointed for all men to die once, and he died in one place. He didn't die in three places in three different ways. So that's an example of what I mean when I say historical inaccuracy in the apocryphal books. And then the apocryphal books are laden with very serious doctrinal problems. I mentioned to you, if a book is part of the canon, it has to be consistent with the other New Testament or Old Testament books. So here's some theological issues in the apocrypha, which you're simply not going to find in any of the books of the Bible. Uh, one is called Prayers for the Dead. Uh, that that practice or that theological basis of praying for the dead is um, a, a, a practice uh, in the Catholic Church uh, given rise to in the apocryphal books. But I challenge you to find me a basis for it in any Old Testament or New Testament book. So I know it's sounding like I'm criticizing the Catholic Church here or perhaps you as a Catholic person. I'm not. I just want to be objective here and I hope you are as well. I, I'm just trying to tell you, see, the burden of proof is on you. If you can show me the practice of praying for the dead substantiated in the Old or New Testament, I'll issue a public apology, a retraction of what I just said. But if I'm right and you're still doing it, why are you doing it? You see? So, so we've just got to be real about these. So praying for the dead is a theological, uh, idiosyncratic uh, custom for which there is no substantiation in Old or New Testament. Uh, there's another theological point of view in the Apocrypha called sinless perfection, where you can attain to the state of sinless perfection. Uh, this, this, this too is inconsistent with the body of theological teaching in Old and New Testament. In fact, the New Testament doesn't want us to even be tempted to think in those terms. And so it says, if we confess our sins, don't deny it. Come on. You're not sinlessly perfect. Only one is, and you ain't him. So if we confess, not deny our sin, you know what you get from the uh, perfect one? You don't get a rebuke. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So the approach to our sin is not to deny it, it's to confess it, and then it will meet up with the mercy of God. So this doctrine of sinless perfection, which emanates from the Apocrypha, is absolutely inconsistent with Old and New Testament theology. Old Testament, all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Come on. The, the, you, if I was in a court of law and we're arguing this case, sinless perfection, you would lose. 
you do not have any evidence on which to base it. And so books that teach that, don't you see, cannot be considered books living up to the rule or standard of divine inspiration because the Lord himself has told us all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of God's perfections. The whole nature of the cross is necessitated and driven by God's mercy in response to our sin. Don't you see this is unnecessary if you and your own effort or I can attain to a state of sinless perfection. So that's an apocryphal theology, therefore, which makes the apocrypha very questionable. Here, here's another kind of esoteric theology, uh, purgatory. And Catholic friends, of course, have been taught about purgatory as a kind of a alternative uh, to heaven or hell, a kind of a transition state, a, uh, a fairly nebula, nebulous kind, kind of a place. And again, I don't want to offend you. I just want to tell you where you're getting it. That's all. So if you're offended by someone asking you for proof, I mean, I don't know what to tell you about that. I just respect you uh, too much to let you get away with something that's unfounded. Now, if there's a basis for it, spit it out. I mean, let's find out. We'll all, you know, we'll all go for purgatory or something. But you cannot find a hint of evidence for purgatory in Old or New Testament. Only in the Apocrypha. You see? As I read the uh, Bible, uh, there's only two options. He who has the Son has eternal life. He who does not have the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. You, 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 you either have eternal fellowship or, or with the Father or you have eternal separation. And I'm just, I wished there was a third option. I got unsaved relatives. <laughs> I wish there was a third option for them. Maybe, maybe there's like this middle ground where people who mean well go. You know, I would like that. That's fantastic. It's just not biblical. So, so that the notion of purgatory, uh, in my opinion, invalidates the canonicity of the Apocrypha. And then, did you know the Apocrypha is laden with magic? Occultic magic. So here is Tobit, T-O-B-I-T, chapter 6. It's an apocryphal book. Verses 5 to 8. Tell me if you like this. If the devil or an evil spirit troubles anyone, they can be driven away by making a smoke of the heart, the liver, and the gall of a fish. And the devil will smell it and flee away and never come again anymore. You whip up a little boudin and it'll scare off the... I mean... See, 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 when I read that, I, I tell you what I do when I read that. I cringe. I want to take a shower. But when I read the Bible, I want to, as Buddy says, I want to snuggle up to the author. I want to bow at his feet. I want to sing his praises. I want to tell someone about him. I want to try to be more pleasing to him. 
I want to confess sin. <laughs> you see the difference? Huge, huge difference. So the Apocrypha is not part of our Bible, and it ought not be part of anybody's uh, Bible. Do you know the apocryphal books were never, ever, ever included as part of Old Testament canon? They were written during the intertestamental period. We spoke about it last week. Uh, uh, between Old Testament and New Testament, we had about 400 silent years. So during that period, the apocryphal books were written. But they were never, ever included in the Old Testament as part of the canon. So how did they get to be embraced by the Catholic Church? Well, folks, I don't know all how it all happened, except to tell you it happened at the Council of Trent in 1546. I told you the canon of Scripture was recognized, unanimously agreed on at the end of the 4th century. So almost a thousand years after that, for whatever reason, the Catholic Church decided in 1546 at the Council of Trent, for who knows what reason, to include the apocryphal books. I got to tell you, that's a stretch. You know what that's like? It's like uh, the Mormon church, um, uh, including uh, uh, the writings of their modern-day prophets as another testament of Jesus Christ. You know, folks, I went to Louisiana for three years, and, I was, and you know, the Lord sent me there to, uh, to the desert to, um, to grow up and to be pruned and and um, to learn composure and self-control. And man, it didn't work. <laughs> because here I am just spouting off at the... But I just have to tell you, we can't mess with this. When you see those marvelously attractive commercials offering you the New Testament and alongside it another testament, you call it 800 number, you get it for free. Oh, I, I shudder to think if I asked you how many have... Called that number and gotten it. Oh, I shudder to think how many in Christian churches have fallen prey to, to it. The Book of Mormon is not canonical scripture. That is, it's filled with historical inaccuracies. Good night. The Mormons are thought to be one of the lost tribes of Israel. Come on. I know what Jews look like. And there ain't even one in Utah. We don't go to Utah. We go to Miami. So, so, listen. God has given us from Genesis to Revelation everything. In Genesis, he took us to eternity past. Listen, in the beginning. God and the earth he created Brenda you're right the heavens and the earth because it was all formless and void so now you know what happened in eternity past there was nothingness listen to the Hebrew words tohu wavohu tohu wavohu formless and void emptiness formlessness inhabitable and you know what the creator did filled it and formed it so that you and I can be in it and live 
we can breathe and have rain and sunshine and crops and sustenance. So in eternity past, barrenness and nothingness. And God created, the word is bara, never used of anyone but God in the Bible. Because there's only one creator God. Now you can think, you can think stuff in existence all you want. You can speak stuff into existence all you want. But you can't. You're not the creator. Oh, bara is only used of God. So, 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 so he took us from eternity past, and then in the book of Revelation, he took us all the way into eternity future. Therefore, the canon is complete. There is no new scripture. Please don't go for this new prophet, new apostle. Look, look, look. Folks, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. It's so important. Listen, Ephesians 2, verse 20. Having been built... Upon the foundation, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief corner stone. There are no longer apostles and prophets in this sense. Nobody is writing scripture anymore. Why? Because God has encapsulated everything between Genesis and Revelation that we need to know. Genesis took us to, from eternity past, Revelation into eternity future. Can you please tell me what can go beyond eternity future? Why, why is there a need for, for new scripture? I don't, even, I don't get the point, you see. In time. So that's why the last book of the Bible, Revelation, tells us Chapter 22, 18 and 19, and you know this, but it's serious. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. <clears throat> the canon has been closed. Thank God for preserving down to this very day 66 books which unveil for us his heart, his holiness, his compassion, his redemptive plan. He's coming again. <laughs> if you're on a desert island and can only take one object, you ever play those goofy games? Make it the Bible. Make it the Bible. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. Right. Right. We ought to sing that. Let's stand. Let's sing together that uh, little phrase. Thy word is a lamp. John Mark, will you trust me to lead these people? <laughs> I'll, do my, I'll do my best. Only the Bible is without error. Jewish song leaders are flawed. <laughs> Let's sing together thy word. Ready? Thy word 
is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Sing again. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light my path. So, Lord Jesus, living and incarnate word, communicator of the unseen Father, who we would not know if you didn't explain him and reveal him to us. We thank you for these 66 marvelous love letters. The warnings emanate from a loving heart. The penalty of rejecting you expressed in them are also from a loving heart for you desire for all to be saved and for none to perish. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for through human agency, overseeing, superintending, preserving without error, this marvelous gift, special revelation for ones such as us. I pray, oh God, you would make room in us for more of it, giving us an appetite for it that will not be satisfied until the day when we see you face to face. And by the way, Lord, thanks for telling us we will see you face to face. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that when we open the scriptures, we go into the holy place. We're able to pass through because the curtain has been torn and you've made a way of passage into the holy of holies. So I pray we would come filled with respect, but also realizing the ease with which we can access the throne of grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for these words. They are words of life, words of eternal and abundant life. Make it to be that this church will continue always, always, always to be founded on the cornerstone, you, and on the bedrock of your word. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Blessings to you, dear folks. Look at this. We're getting out early.